listening to the Journey Home Podcast. Welcome to the Journey Home Podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. Today I'm speaking with Miles Adcox. Miles is a speaker, advocate, advisor, and entrepreneur in the emotional wellness space. He is the chairman and owner of Onsite, an internationally recognized emotional wellness lifestyle brand that delivers personal growth workshops, digital mental health masterclasses, emotionally smart leadership retreats, and residential emotional wellness and trauma treatment. Miles' work at Onsite has been featured on Good Morning America, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Dr. Phil's Show, Billboard, and more. I met Miles last year after a speech he gave on trauma at a Hazel Forums conference, and I remember being so engaged with his presentation on trauma. He was clearly well-versed in the area, yet he had this real humility and authenticity about him. I remember it feeling more like we were all having a coffee and chat, rather than sitting and watching a formal presentation. It's a quality I've noticed I really value in others, as it allows me to arrive, feel safe, and connect effortlessly. In a way, it's akin to a kind of homecoming. I'm here with Miles Adcox. Miles, it's great to see you. Nice to see you as well. Thanks for having me. How are things with you today? Pretty good. It was an adventurous morning. I have been, we have a, I'm in Tennessee at our main campus, which I know we'll get to probably in a bit with Onsite, and I've got an adjoining farm, a horse ranch that mm. I love to, to spend time on on the weekends. And I had some, this morning, I was up early and some of the horses got out. So I've been wrangling oh, horses since about 6.30, right oh. up until now. So that was a fun way to start a Monday. Yeah. And uh, I take it you, you got them all back in. Yeah, we got them all taken care of. They're all safely back home. Oh, good news. Well, I wonder if we can start at the beginning of your journey, Miles. Um, what was your home like growing up? It was a good, you know, overall, it was a good home. We had a, a pretty good foundation. There were a lot of things that uh, our system set us up well for. You know, we had a secure attachment and and then we were definitely, it was definitely imperfect in many ways and that we didn't do emotion that well. We didn't talk about uh, feelings, emotions, and mm. that was a uh, part of the catalyst that led me into my work and into my space uh, was uh, that that was kind of a generational element that had come from a few generations. And thankfully, I, I would say my my parents who are still together 50 plus years have uh, mm. leaned into some of the work that we do that at, at onsite, the work that I've done. And it feels like we've shifted that paradigm or that pattern in a really great way. And mm. I think we're going to be breaking that generational pattern going forward. But overall, uh, did a lot of things well and a lot of things imperfectly. Tell me about your experience of trauma and recovery. Well, I would say that trauma for me, and it grows every year. Mm. And ironically, it's, it's still controversial a bit because there were movements in the residential treatment space uh, around the substance use, the treatment of substance use. And then trauma came on much later. Mm. And 
I was one of the early adopters, you know, having been in the field for a couple of decades and had a uh, extended care program that had an opportunity to run prior to my time at Onsite. Mm. That we were treating extended care uh, addiction and uh, eating disorders, mm. and I, I just couldn't get satisfied with our outcomes. Yeah, I, and I wasn't afraid to talk about it. Most of the field was because everyone was kind of protective of what they had their offerings. But I just started asking questions and talking about it, probably naive and a bit green mm. in the field. But I just I kept seeing people come back, and it wasn't that we were doing anything different than every other residential program, at least in the States, we were using some of the same modalities and had built some, but something was missing. And I just was very curious because it felt like we were really had a symptom driven approach. And at some point I wanted to unravel and get to the root of what was causing mental health uh, challenges and substance use disorders and eating disorders and other pathology. And that led me down the road of the field of trauma. And we really uh, when when I got to know and understand trauma, even well before it got as popular as it is now, I really, and this is a statement that I've used before, and depending on what circle I'm in, and in, mm-hmm. in, in the mental health lane, some might see it as controversial, but I really think most all pathology, and I would describe pathology as just resistant to change, stuck behavior, mm-hmm. and plug in whatever that is. I think almost 100% of it is rooted in emotional or psychological trauma. Yeah. I think it's that that broad, that vast. Um, so I don't look at it like the classic uh, DSM uh, diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. That's certainly an element of it. But I do think that trauma in a broad context is just acute compound stress that our body really doesn't know what to do with. And we don't have cultural elements that are built in to create natural outlets. And so often when we experience adversity in life, we end up going inward instead of outward. And then trauma can have Uh, an overwhelming impact at some point in our trajectory and our development. And when we shifted our model at that residential program years ago to say, we're going to specialize in trauma, we're Mm -hmm. still going to treat substance use. We're still going to treat some of the other things. And I get it. I mean, there are times when if you've got somebody in primary substance use, we've got to arrest the symptoms for a period of time before we can actually treat trauma. When we started doing it uh, in, in a parallel process, it was amazing how our outcomes started to improve overnight. And then I've been on the path ever since. That was, you know, 15, 18 years ago before trauma was a buzzy, uh, cool, mm-hmm. sexy word that it is mm-hmm. now. And now everybody's kind of becoming trauma-informed, which is fantastic. But when I got to onsite, I wanted to build the entire model uh, on, on a trauma. Mm-hmm. It's more than trauma-informed because understanding trauma is one thing, but knowing yeah. how to treat it is quite another. But as it relates to me personally, and just to back up a little bit, and then I'll, I'll throw it back to you, but that was, that was a big part of my journey too. When I got into my early, you know, recovery um, you know, emotional recovery, I was medicating and numbing with a lot of different things, a lot of creative ways to numb uncomfortable emotions and emotional mm-hmm. pain. But when I started unraveling and doing my work around trauma and shame, um, mm-hmm. I experienced a freedom unlike I've could ever describe to anyone. I've been on the journey, you know, for ever since. And so it's, it's personal to me, but it's also professional. And I'm really excited to see that the whole landscape is opening up and the field is starting to adopt it because I think we're going to be doing better treatment because of it. Yeah. Oh, it's really great to hear. And kind of leads me on to something I wanted to talk to you about. You know, that emotional freedom can transform lives. And I was hearing there about your recovery and what I make up is quite a relational healing approach. Um, talk about this notion of emotional freedom and how it can transform our lives. Well, I think so many of us are 
either born into or culturally conditioned to not identify, clarify, and express uh, how we're feeling and mm. how those feelings can uh, either get in the way of or um, optimize the way we do relationships. We, we know there's enough data now to know through the studies that have been done around EQ that it outpaces IQ in most every area, interpersonal relationships, leadership. But most of us just assume that we're naturally wired. Now, the good news is with EQ or emotional intelligence, that is a, a skill that can be developed and grown. Mm -hmm. IQ, you kind of have what you have. There's not much yeah. you can do about that. And, and yet, unfortunately, most people don't get an opportunity to grow their emotional intelligence, even though that it benefits us in every way possible. It builds better relationships, better connections, better leadership. We just mm -hmm. be become better humans all around when we engage with and understand what we're feeling it, when we're feeling it, and how it might be supportive mm -hmm. of day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. We usually don't experience that until we have some kind of setback in life. You know, if you get into some type of recovery, if you go to counseling and therapy, it's still branded in a way that says this is where you go when something's wrong with you. And actually, what we're trying to do and a lot of other people is we're trying to mobilize this mm -hmm. body of information we have and use it in more of a preventative way versus yeah. a reactive way. Because most residential and counseling services, they, we sit back uh, and wait on culture to need us. And then when somebody falls mm -hmm. out, we try to scoop them up. And support them, but in, rea in, in reality, we sit on some tools that are highly uh, have high implications for a lot mm -hmm. of the things we're struggling with right now across the world. There's significant polarity, a lot mm -hmm. of acute stress post pandemic, and we've got this great information. And I just think we use it in such a one dimensional way yeah. that I think uh, emotional health and wellness has tremendous implications uh, on healing many parts of a lot of different. Uh, things in humanity and society. And I think we're just getting started on how it's going to benefit us. Amazing. I really like that sense of we're born with this, with our IQs and how there being this sense of a high IQ is a good thing, but a high EQ is still a bit of a weird thing for some people. What does that mean? What does that look like when actually I hear quite an integration is, is needed rather than just focusing on what historically might, we may have thought is the way to solve problems. I guess for me, it opens up that thing of, you know, you sort of touched on this businesses and in the world, you know, it's like, how can we have more compassion for ourselves, for other people? How can we resolve these things that are going on, you know, drawing on that? What do you feel around that? What more can we do? Well, I kind of view the way we look at emotional wellness, mental health, emotional intelligence is it's, we, we, I think we, we somewhat value the importance of it but we really don't pay attention to it until mm -hmm. it's off balance. Every other process or tool that we utilize in our day-to-day -day life, we do preventative maintenance. We, we wouldn't dream of not taking our vehicle into the shop to do preventative maintenance because we know it's going to break down, but we don't typically take ourselves in to do an emotional tune-up until, as I said earlier, mm. we feel we need it. And I'm really trying to shift the narrative to it's not what any of us need, but it's what all of us deserve. We all deserve to be more connected to who we are and who we're becoming. And emotional uh, intelligence, I like to call it emotional fitness because it implies mm. that it's not just a one-stop shop. It's something that we can kind of continue to maintain and grow into and pursue. But it's really just having a, a better, uh, just power, understanding, and strength and empathy mm. around our mood and our feelings towards ourselves and mm. towards other people. And mm. ultimately, I think when we engage and have a better understanding and clarify with our emotions, we can stop reacting 
and start reflecting mm-hmm. and our responses are a bit more uh, attuned and clear instead of dragging whatever imprint or baggage that we might be bringing into every current circumstance or relationship. I really feel the one area we're missing in terms of ongoing human development is our social and emotional learning. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we could all use a dose of what I like to call human school. And <laughs> it's just how, how do we become better human beings along the trajectory, not just do it once we do the best we can to try to blend it into education, early education. And, and, and then, you know, we kind of get informed through business or politics and all these different mm. substructures, but none of them are informed as much as psychology and behavioral health in terms of how human beings tick. My dream, and I actually, I've got, um, you know, a, a URL called humanschool.com. I'm working on a book right now to create uh, a, a, an innovative framework that we can mobilize and pull into different structures and systems out in humanity and, in, in a sense, uh, create a bit of a, a we, we've got plenty of rehab opportunities when you fall out. We don't have any prehabs. And <laughs> I, I, I really want to get ahead of people by giving, equipping them with the tools. And not just for people. It's also for people who are in recovery because a lot of times we get into long-term recovery and never really get to the core yeah, of who yeah. we are and, and therefore don't do interpersonal relationships better. But I, I, I really believe if we get an educational being a better human, we learn to become more humane to ourselves. That's what emotional fitness and wellness and intelligence does. And when we're more humane to ourselves, we become more humane to other people. We're just kinder to ourselves and other people. And I think that recipe creates a better humanity. It's really hard to sit in circles Mm. when you're processing in a a really authentic way with with Mm. the guard down and and being real. And and obviously in the context of psychological safety, which you can do in living rooms and boardrooms, it doesn't have to be in a counseling room. Yeah. But when you do it, it's hard to walk away without your collective empathy going up. Mm. And I think we're seeing right now a more guarded world in a less empathetic world. And empathy is another thing we can grow. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I was like, I think what really stood out there for me was this notion of an emotional tune-up. Um, kind of brings me brings to mind that notion of journey, not destination. You know, this emotional fitness for sure. I really, I really like that. So we've spoken a little bit about on-site. For those who may be unfamiliar, talk about on-site, what it is, and your journey with it. Of course, yeah. I'm I'm really fortunate to get to represent a service that I really believe deeply in. I'm passionate about it and. It's been such a good ride uh, with the last uh, 18, 20 years since I've been, you know, at the helm. But prior to onsite predates me. It's got a really beautiful lineage and a great history that goes back over 40 years. And a lot of people don't know the history. I've I've been so identified with it. And Mm -hmm. I'm the third, third uh, person, the third group to own it. And Mm -hmm. I, I, and because I've been here for so long, a lot of people would call me the founder. And I always remind them, I was like, actually, uh, there was someone before me. Uh, now, there are parts of our programming that I did create and innovate and found, but th- some of the, our, our roots go way back to a woman yeah. by the name of Sharon Whitechatter Cruz. Mm-hmm. And anybody who studied a little counseling or if you've uh, gone to got some education on it or if you read some books and you would have read her book, she was a pioneer back in the 70s and 80s around codependency mm-hmm. and was one of the founding co- co-chairs of Adult Children of Alcoholics. And she grew up in an alcoholic system, never picked up alcohol herself, but felt the same pain. Mm. Uh, in watching her parents struggle, especially her father, and mm. wound up uh, finding a place that would treat a female. It was an all-substance abuse program back in the 70s in the States, mm. and there were no treatment programs for codependency and the fallout of um, 
you know, uh, dysfunctional families and uh, addicted families. And, and so she kind of helped pioneer that and had that vision early on that if we don't treat the whole system, that we're, uh, we're not going to have as good of an outcome. Mm-hmm. And that was the original vision of Onsite was to create a place for the families of substance abuse or for family members of a substance abuse client or, mm-hmm. and it, it's really evolved into much more than that. Uh, but those are the roots. And then I, I was in the residential treatment space, as I mentioned earlier, at another program, I started out mm-hmm. doing crisis interventions and then I moved into residential treatment and I always had this vision for more. I thought if the mm-hmm. door was just wider, because I saw this unbelievable thing happen once people were engaged in an undistracted 30, 60 day, 90 day process to, ideally heal parts of their past that might be holding them back to go to the future. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't see treatment or rehab or the things that I had thought before I got into it, which was the, this is where the crazy people go, padded walls, no doorknobs, all that. None of that was true. I thought, man, these are some of the brightest and best people on the planet that are just becoming better versions of themselves by pausing the, the noise of the world mm. to do personal, interpersonal work. And I thought, how could we get the whole world to do this? And my goal really was like, how could you get the whole world to go through 30 days of interpersonal work? And I knew that wasn't realistic. I thought there's no way we're going to do that, but maybe I could get them to do a week. Maybe I could get them to do a few days. Yeah. And I, I just knew if we had a, a product that was more digestible and e- easier to consume, the door would be wider and maybe more of the general public would become emotionally intelligent and more self-aware. And mm-hmm. that's really what guided me to onsite. I had a business plan to start a program to take the best at what I'd seen in mm-hmm. change theory and psychology and emotional recovery mm-hmm. and create programming that would be for the everyday person, the worried well. Would they engage with it? Is it more effective than the 50-minute traditional counseling session? Well, we found out coupled together, they do really well. As I begin on the journey to look at creating something like that, I developed a relationship with the people who had onsite at the time. I was really looking for a retreat center. I didn't really want the company, but I really was looking for a retreat center because the more I dug into the research and data, I was trying to come up with an idea of how do you engage with people who wouldn't normally engage with a process like this? Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe it's a seminar business. And I started studying the, the people who were traveling around, the personal growth people of the 70s, 80s, and 90s who were traveling around and people would go to hotels and engage with them for four days. And I thought, that's that's a great movement, but it, it feels like if you can't pull somebody and isolate them from their environment, pull out all the medicators, don't send them back to a hotel room at night to get on their phone or Netflix or whatever. I really wanted to recreate that that bubble, that undistracted bubble. And so I was looking for a retreat center. Onsite had one. They were looking for a succession plan. And then when I got into the roots of the the, the business and the history, they had a great, they really had a great lineage. They were one of the more sophisticated clinical products I'd ever seen, but a lot of people didn't know about them. And yeah. I had a little bit of background in, in marketing too. And I thought, we just got to tell a better story here. So I ended up acquiring the program back in 2007. And mm-hmm. I ran both the residential program that I was running at the time and on site uh, for the first few years because I couldn't quite afford to, to pay myself to come over full time. But then once we got started getting some momentum, probably around 2009 is when I came over full time. And then we've just really been growing since. Oh, amazing. And that interpersonal work. Tell me about your experience of therapy. 
Yeah, and I didn't even really. Uh, I'm bad about this. I'm the worst, especially for a guy that has a marketing background. The worst at telling people what we do. I, I kind of get into the story and the passion behind it, but and and I'll get to my part too. But I, I should have said sure. it. so for the listeners who have no idea what onsite is, uh, hmm. which is the question you asked me. So, um, oh, don't worry. We we, we offer short term intensive personal growth therapeutic workshops. Hmm. Uh, so you can do uh, individual, couple, family with a private team of therapists. You can mm -hmm. come in and do group work. Uh, we've got our flagship program. It's called the Living Center Program. It's highly specialized in mm -hmm. trauma, codependency, family of origin, depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a healing trauma week and a whole variety of different workshops. So we'll run about uh, 48, 49 weeks out of every year. Yeah. We'll run in-person live workshops at a campus just west of Nashville, Tennessee, about 45 minutes on about three, 300 acres. And, and then we, I opened a second location out in San Diego County out on the West coast. And so I've got another retreat center out there and every week we're just running a series of, of workshops and we'll see about 2,500, 3,000 people a year through these workshops. Yeah. And then also under the on-site umbrella, we have a whole digital effort where we've got emotional health master classes that we've been mm -hmm. launching and digital intensives. And then in one other piece I'll tell you about is, is milestones. Mm -hmm. We started a residential long-term uh, mm -hmm. treatment programs specializing in trauma, depression, and anxiety. So that's actually what OnSite's about. And and then to quickly pivot into, or that's what OnSite does, to quickly mm -hmm. pivot into your next question, which is what's therapy been like for me? When I first got into it, it was a bumpy road because mm -hmm. I I just assumed, I, first of all, I just had, there was so much stigma wrapped up in the idea that I needed to go talk to somebody about what I was struggling with and challenged with. And that at that time, that was years ago, that was when the stigma was really significant. Right now, it's it's opened up a lot more. But nonetheless, it was hard for me to pick the phone up and to, to go talk with someone. And I just assumed that all therapists are created equal. I, you know, if you if you call your therapist, call yourself a therapist, and if you have the credentials and the, the license, then you must be the same as the, the guy mm -hmm. next door. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that's not the case. It turns <laughs> out ther therapy and counseling is just just like any other profession. There's uh, all different kinds of skill sets and trainings and modalities. And, and I think the personal connection you feel with a guide or a therapist is as important as any model they might use to mm -hmm. try to support you in the change process. And I think that gets overlooked. Now, when, as I'm matching people with therapists all over the, the country, I'm really looking at how well are you going to be able to connect with this human? Um, before they try to do something to change you, because that's what I missed in the very beginning. So I went and I had a false start. two or three people up front that I just didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't even know you could interview a therapist for the right match or fit at that time. And I almost didn't go back. Mm -hmm. I almost didn't go back because I just had two or three bad experiences and that weren't a fit. And it was already pulling teeth to get me to go. But I thought, you know, I was desperate. Because I was in a spot where I was just feeling dark and a little lost. And I thought, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna try one more time. And thankfully. This time I got lucky and landed with someone who was just a good match. Mm. And within two sessions, I started, it was like I was being absorbing a new language. I, yeah. I, I just fell in love with it. It didn't become taxing anymore. It became something I was excited about and mm. interested in engaging with. And I kind of became obsessed at that point with, I, I want to make that process easier for people. And if I ever have my hands in a program or a process, I am mm. going to curate the clinical talent to no end. I want the mm -hmm. best of the best around the table that if anybody's mm -hmm. going to take a chance with their resource of time and money to come work on themselves, I want them to rest assured that I have taken care of making sure that the clinical talent is at the top of the food chain. That's one of the things we hang our hat on 
at Onsite is we engage with hundreds of clinicians around the world, and we've got some of the best of the best that come here mm-hmm. that facilitate and train. But and, and the last thing I'll say about my experience is the reason that that was such a good fit for me in mm-hmm. the early days was because I didn't come in to a session and try to adapt to somebody's style. Yeah. I met a therapist who got to know me and he adapted his model to my learning style. Mm-hmm. And I happened, I'm, I'm more of a visual learner and he yeah. wasn't an experience. He wasn't an experiential therapist. Mm-hmm. He was more of a cognitive therapist, but he recognized that I was a visual learner and he adapted his style and he mm-hmm. moved to more of a visual experience. And yeah. as soon as I got uh, experiential education in therapy, I took off like a rocket. And yeah. when I stopped, when I was sitting for the first few sessions and trying to talk to somebody from this part, from the prefrontal and just share my story, it was helpful. And it's, it's a well-researched model. It just didn't really generate change for me. Yeah. I needed to see it, feel it, touch it in order to grow with it. Oh, I, I so resonate with that, that sense of having a couple of therapists and almost feeling like this must be right. They must all be the same, but actually having that transformative experience of being met by another person in relationship and going where you need to go. And going back to what you said earlier, we deserve it. You know, it's a gift. You mentioned the Living Centered part of the program. Now you're the co-host of the Living Centered podcast. Um, How has this been for you? Well, I'm a little rusty because I haven't actually hosted the podcast in, in oh. a little while. I, I did I did kick it off as a co-host and then I kind of handed it off because we had a, a team in-house that do mm-hmm. a great job. It was a little bit taxing on my time. And so I did the first several episodes and then now my team has been hosting and occasionally they'll bring me in to co-host yeah. if it's someone I know. But as far as podcasting, I really like it. I, mm-hmm. I think it's just a it's the ball. I love talking to people. I'm wildly curious about people. That's why I work in our space. Prior to Living Center podcast, I started a podcast um, called Unspoken and did two seasons of that. And that was really fun. That was my first step into the podcasting space. And it did it did really well. I wasn't necessarily going for a commercial appeal, I would, but I did want to try to at least break even. And so I engaged and we sold some advertising and probably we got, we probably just broke even because I was traveling a lot and interviewing yeah. people, but I had, I had the most fun and I thought it was really educational and interesting. And what told me that I should, you know, stepping into the podcast world, I'm sure you experienced this too. Mm. It's a little overwhelming because there's just so many. And it's like, yeah, how, yeah. how do you, how do you see any return on time, the investment mm. of time with this in such a sea of podcast and but it, all it took was a little bit of feedback from people who might be listening to our episode today that walked away with yeah. a little more hope uh, mm-hmm. than they had prior to engaging and I thought that's worth my time I'll spend a time talking to another human being about a topic I'm passionate about if it inspires and encourages people to get help and so that's been my journey with podcasts I, I've, I've started a couple and stepped away from both and I've got mm-hmm. a third solo podcast that's launching next month I'll be announcing it right here. I guess I haven't announced it yet, but it's going to be called Human School. Mm. And I'm really excited uh, to, to kick that one off. Living Centered Podcast is going to continue on out of on-site. Mm. And we've also got another one, called I think it's called Healing Trauma. It's more of a trauma-specific uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. So I hope you'll tune in and I'll be sharing more on, on my social channels about this new podcast soon. For sure. I heard it first here, folks. Um, Human School, looking forward to it. Now, Miles, I, I had the pleasure of seeing you at a trauma conference last year and i really enjoyed what you had to share i I felt you really brought me in and you spoke about home now this podcast is called the journey home and 
I wanted to hone in what makes your home a home for you. Well, thank you, by the way, for the feedback mm. about the uh, the talk. That was a really fun event. Mm. And I guess that would have been the last time I was I was over in London. I miss it. I have mm. a lot of great friends and colleagues, uh, mm. and ho- hope to get back sometime here in early summer. It's such a thoughtful question. I really appreciate it, and I'm and I, I when I saw the title come in for the invitation uh, to to be a guest on your show, mm. I thought that was the title of our specific. Uh, episode. I didn't realize it was the title of the whole podcast. I love that title mm, because no, it, it does have a lot of implications. And I guess if I were going to talk about home, I think about it more as an internal state of being versus an external or physical uh, structure. I like a lot of people in my profession for years. You know, we we know what we know, and mm. ideally, we know what we don't know, which is the mark of somebody who knows. But mm. sometimes we don't know what we don't know until we do this for a little while. And there's so mm. many things I did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago that I have really shifted the paradigm and wouldn't do now. But mm. I, but I, but ideally, I'm just still a work in process, of yeah. work in progress as a professional. But one of those things is I, I remember when people came from abusive or fragmented uh, environments, let's say they had an insecure attachment, didn't have, you know didn't have a good imprint growing up, which there are a lot of people that we serve and treat. And as part of them kind of healing some of that, we use language on the back end, family of choice. Mm-hmm. So it looks like your family, your uh, biological family is not a healthy place for you. So let's help you build a family of choice where you get to choose how and who you engage with. And theoretically, that's a good thing. And mm-hmm. I've seen it be effective for a lot of people. But it also could be a bit of a setup because we're always going to be biologically drawn and wired to go yeah. back to a system. And I think we have to have a real a realistic mm-hmm. sever in, in order to to make sure that frame is successful. Mm-hmm. And I say that because often on the heels of inviting somebody into a family of choice, another thing we say in therapy circles and recovery circles a lot is that you need to be around safe people, mm-hmm. and safe places and safe processes. And I think that's a bit of a setup. And I'll tell you why it relates to the question that you asked me about being home or what is home. Because I don't, and, and over time, I've just learned that I don't, if I think about safety being psychological safety, meaning when we feel seen, heard, valued, and validated with the company that we're around, with the places, with the work environments, with the culture, when we, when we feel those things, we have a sense of letting our guard and be more authentically who, who we are. But when... We're always in our radar assessing who's safe. Is this safe? Is this person safe? Is this leader safe? Is this, uh, uh, then it's, it's an unrealistic expectation because humans in general are just not, we're not always going to be safe for one another. We're mm. wounded. We're all wounded. Yeah. We're going to bump into one another. And I really, I, I've stopped saying that, uh, find safe people in places as part of your recovery journey. I've, I, I say safety doesn't exist out there, but it can be created in here. I really believe safety is an internal process, psychological safety. And once we create it and we do the work to keep ourselves safe, we can walk into trying and challenging circumstances in relationships and in, in leadership, and, and we can take care of ourselves. It's more of a realistic path and an obtainable path. And I really feel like the same with home. I, mm-hmm. You know, home is never going to be perfect. I've got a, a great home that I'm continuing to build that I'm proud of. I've got two young kids and, and a lovely wife mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not perfect, but it's not really about what's imperfect. It's about that we catch it and we're able to repair it and always come back to this space mm-hmm. where we're forgiving for one another. And we see one another, we value one another. We don't try to 
do it perfectly. There's times when home feels great. There's times when home feels stressful. Mm. It's not always this perfect beacon that I'm excited to go to because sometimes I come in very charged with my work and very disengaged from my spouse. And, and what I want is a space where I know I've got the opportunity to be fully human. Mm. I can be a mess and I can be a saint. And it just depends on the day. But when I am a mess and it has an impact on that safe structure that we create internally and therefore it kind of bleeds out externally, then I get a chance to check that. I get a chance to check myself, reflect on it and respond and repair it differently. I want to, I want a space that is full of empathy and grace. That's what home is to me. And what I've, what I've recognized is that when I have it in here, no matter where I go, I'm taking a piece of home with me. Mm, that's so nice, Miles. It, it reminds me of often in like compassion focused therapy or in the self-compassion research there's that sort of notion of if we can be kind to ourselves we can then take responsibility where people often think being kind to ourselves means we won't take any responsibility but i kind of heard a bit of that from what you were saying the sense of allowing yourself to be a human being imperfectly perfect and i felt like i wanted to just breathe a sigh of relief as i was listening to you there it just sounded mm -hmm. so nice um all right thank you for saying that and i i think it's such a disservice to our field to, mm. and, and I made this mistake, you know, part of the draw to becoming a helping professional or getting into the, the mental health space mm. was that I was so hungry for the information and mm. I really wanted to live a genuinely authentic life after mm. I got a taste of what that felt like. And I thought if I work in this field to help other people do that, then it'll probably hold me accountable to my own journey. Mm. And I'll get to surround myself with people who have all the tools and they must do life really well. Yeah. And, then, and then when I got behind the curtain and I, I started interacting with colleagues and clinicians and therapists and super smart people, even the ones that we would consider the gurus, which I'm not a big fan of the guru model, um, they're all very imperfect and very human. Yeah. And I see so many therapists that people pedestal because just because we have the tools doesn't mean that we always know how to use them. The mm. idea is, is that we have the tools and when we don't use them, we catch it and use them sooner. And we're yeah. able to get back on track. But just yesterday, just as a quick story, I'm I, right now I'm on our, our campus here in Tennessee mm -hmm. and I've got a, uh, we've got a, a farmhouse. It's kind of a private spot where we do some of our entertainment intensives and it's on the back hundred acres of our, our ranch here. And I keep some horses over there because I, I, I'm a horse guy. I grew up with horses. I'm a big fan of uh, how horses benefit people. We do mm -hmm. a lot of equine assisted therapy, but uh, you know, one day when I grow up, I, I actually want to be a cowboy if I can ever figure out how to make a living <laughs> at it. But uh, for, for, for now, I'll just keep, you know, keep doing what I'm doing. But, but mm -hmm. I, I rode one of my horses over because I had a few guests here that were doing some programming and I rode one of my horses over for breakfast. This was a new horse that I'd only had for, I've only had him for about a week. And when I got him, I knew where he came from. He's a little older and has some really great foundational training on him. And mm -hmm. he, when I first got on him, I thought this is one of the most trained horses I've ever been on. And he was just a, just amazing to ride and connect with. I just, mm -hmm. it was like everything was in sync. I brought him over two days ago on campus and he was, he was a mess. His head was all over the place. He couldn't keep his feet still. And this was again, a week before one of the most well-trained animals I'd ever experienced a Gosh. week later we're on campus and there's people around and you know, people are coming up and wanting to meet me and they're wanting to see the horse and he's a hot mess. His anxiety is mm. through the roof. And all I could think about was what is wrong with him? What's he missing? And mm. so I, I started employing training. My, my, I, I, you know, I'm a trainer too. So I start trying to use training techniques to try to ground him and calm his energy. And I missed the big piece. And here's mm. how I knew it. 
So there was a client that walked up. I, I knew her because I had worked on the phone with her and she was there doing some work. And she was three days into her process. And I, I got off the horse. I shook her hand. I met her. And uh, she said, I had some really big breakthroughs this morning. And I have just a sense of peace about what I learned. And um, for the audience that can't see that or that can't see us, uh, I might get emotional in a minute, but that wasn't emotional yeah. just quite yet. I just literally yeah. been talking too much the last few days. I lost my voice. So I get off to talk to her. And when I'm talking to her, she just has a sense of peace because she's in the middle of unpacking her work. and She's done some mm. healing. And here I am holding this anxious horse behind her. And another guest walks up and wants to say hello. And I just look at the guest. It has this piece on her. And I said, hey, are you a horse person? Do you have horses? And she said, actually, I do. And I said, well, would you hold this for a minute while I say hello to this other guest? I just handed her the reins. Mm -hmm. And as I went over and shook hands with this guest, I looked over my shoulder and the horse completely mirrored her energy and calmed right down. Here I am, the owner of this facility, ideally the expert, even though I don't like being called an expert. And here's somebody three days into one of my processes, and they're having a better impact on this horse than the guy that's been training for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about this process. That's a human element because I, as long as I'm humble and I'm mm-hmm. open, I don't look at that experience and be like, oh my gosh, they're going to see I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I look yeah. at that moment and I thought, whoa, what do I have to learn right now? Maybe this has nothing to do with the horse and everything to do with the way mm-hmm. I'm showing up this morning. And Maybe. sure enough, I reset my anxiety and, uh, and and we did great for the rest of the day. So I, it just reminded me of that story just because it just happened two days ago. And when you said it felt you took a deep breath when you heard mm. me say it's okay to be human. I mm. want everybody, whether you're a therapist listening or whether you're just a, a person listening, that's what it's all about is mm. that we get an opportunity to be human with one another. Oh, that's amazing. And and I, I'm really glad you brought that in because... I certainly connect with with imagery and metaphors, and it was just quite literally handing over the reins to another human and connecting, and really powerful. Miles, what does spirituality mean to you? Hmm. Well, a, a lot. I, I I grew up with more uh, of a religious imprint versus a spiritual imprint, hmm. and. And yet I got some foundational elements from that, that I'm really proud of and have brought with me. And there were some stuff I needed to deconstruct and relearn because Mm -hmm. it was more of a a rules-based faith, rules-based faith versus a relational-based faith. And I'd say definitely the way I look at spirituality today is it's more relational. I am, I do believe in, in, in God and for this is, you know, it's the way I look at it. The way we do things here at Onsite is we call ourselves faith inclusive, meaning we don't exclude when anybody does and doesn't believe everybody's welcome here, regardless if you, if you engage with spirituality or not, but we certainly employ it into the program and we, we share it. We don't shy away from it. We just try to make it inclusive for people of all walks. For me, it's really spirituality is love and connection. That's mm. in grace. That's really what it is at its core. Mm. And when I engage with my spirituality, like we had a really, really bad storm come through here last week. Mm. And we had like 60 mile an hour uh, straight line winds uh, mm. for like four or five hours. And we had 80 something people on campus. And we st- and when uh, we have storms like that. We can't really sustain them. And so we lost some trees. There were some big trees that blew down on campus mm-hmm. and knocked the power out. So we lost power for uh, over 48 hours with 80 something people here. 
you can imagine me as the proprietor. I was pretty stressed about that. <laughs> yeah. And because all I could think about was people, you know, took their time and used their resources to come here to get some healing. And this is really going to be a big distraction. And so I was in the background, just, you know, all over the place, trying to get the power company, the electric company, calling in anything I could to try to get people mm. here to get the power back on because I didn't want to distract our guest. But something really interesting happened that once we got the power back on, I started checking in with guests and I expected to start fielding a few complaints from mm -hmm. the inconveniences. And I got quite the opposite. Wow. Not one complaint. And everyone said, the last time we had conversations under candlelight with no technology and no distractions, we can't even recall it. It was one of the most spiritual experiences we've ever had. Mm -hmm. And they said... They, they thought I did it on purpose. They said, that's a really neat touch for the program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> shut, shut the power down day two. But there was something about spirituality slows me down and it engages me in love uh, towards others and myself. And, and I believe that's what it has the power to be able to do. And I think when people engage with their spirituality, whatever version that may mm -hmm. be, mm -hmm. it can supercharge your recovery and change process. Oh, love that. Thank you for sharing that. So honest. and. And authentic, really value that. Word association is something I do with all my guests. Um, I'm not sure if it's something you've got experience in or how you feel about that. Um, Carl Jung would often imply this technique as a, as a way of revealing parts of the mind that were normally relegated to the unconscious. Does it sound okay to give that a whirl? Let's give it a try, yeah. Cool. Okay. I'll say, uh, say a few words and let me know the first thing that comes out. Vulnerability. I'd have to just say life. Now that I've engaged with it and it is not a, a tool or a state of being that I employ in times of need mm. or when I feel it's a necessity, I think it's a state of being. It's the way I live my life. Mm. Honesty. I would say honesty. The, the, well, just as vulnerability, the first word that came to mind was life. The first word that came to mind with honesty is everything. Mm, everything. It's it's uh, it's something I'm in constant pursuit of. Mm. As humans, we are all wired to deceive. Um, we all deceive ourselves and others every day. It's just part of it. But boy, there's so much freedom in being able to live an open, vulnerable, and honest life. So I would say um, it's really everything for me. Mm. And it reminds me of what you were talking about earlier, that sense of we are going to make mistakes. We are wired the way we are, but being able to step back, it's a bit like that, that old Buddhist analogy of the secondary arrow. We might not be able to do anything about the first arrow, but we can have choice over the second. So we may lie, but we can choose about what happens next. That's what came up for me when you said that. Um, I love that. Yeah. Next word, intimacy. Mm. The, f the first word that popped up, mm. and I'm just going to be completely transparent, was challenging. Mm. Challenging. The second word that pops up is necessary. So to speak into the first word, I shared at the top of the conversation, mm. not a lot. You know, I didn't share a lot about my family, my upbringing, because we're just getting to know each other, you know, but uh, yeah. that was the first question you asked. And I just alluded to a couple big themes like... Mm amazing family, loving family, lucky to have them. And yet we didn't do some things well. And one of them was emotions at a certain stage of development. Mm -hmm. And without emotional congruency, it's very difficult to do intimacy. Yeah. I really believe that. And so the imprint around that, and I don't, I'm not putting it all on my system because I developed a lot of that as I grew, mm -hmm. 
is we didn't do, uh, you know, not a lot of um, affirmative or, you know, touch or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I've really had to work at that. I still have to work at that interpersonally. Mm -hmm. My wife was here and we were checking in with her on the interview, she would say, but she's very aware of it, you know, that mm -hmm. I'm naturally, we, we, my system was a little bit more like this. My wife's mm -hmm. system was a lot like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so her love language is different than mine. Hers is physical touch. Mine's mm -hmm. words of affirmation. I struggle mm -hmm. with the physical touch. It's not where I go in times of stress. So that's the challenging part of intimacy to me is it's an original imprint, but boy, is it necessary. Mm -hmm. And intimacy is not just with uh, interpersonal, it's it's across, but uh, I, I have grown to experience it with all beings and with myself. And boy, when I get a taste of it, do I love it. It's like oxygen, but I, mm -hmm. I am challenged by it. Yeah. Darkness. That's interesting. The first word that came up when you said darkness was light. And now I got to think about why. I like this game. I like this word association piece. This is fun. Mm. I, I think I'm so attuned and comfortable dancing with mine and other people's darkness, maybe too comfortable that I, I just live in it all the time. So when I'm daily uh, trying to bring someone out of darkness and give them a path towards experiencing more light, I have this ease and comfortability holding space and listening to uh, really challenging circumstances that people go through, horrific things that have happened to people. I think I naturally am inclined and, and wired that way, but also think I've done a lot of training uh, yeah. to be able to consume that without letting it consume me. But again, sometimes it does. Uh, so sure. I, I, I do let it get the best of me at times, but I always get encouraged and excited when someone presents their darkness to me or whenever mm -hmm. I'm able to identify my own darkness, because I've seen some of the most transformative and most beautiful miracles just on the backside of someone's darkness. So mm -hmm. when I think dark, when someone thinks darkness or they feel darkness, I think, oh, boy, light's just around the corner. Just the fact that you just shared this with me. Amazing. And that is the next one, light. The first word that popped up when, when I went inward with light was hope. We live in a, an interesting time and the world is in an interesting place. I make up. It always is. If we go back, there's always been adversity and challenges, but it, at least the time I've been on earth, it does feel like we're in a, a kind of a, a highly polarized um, mm. space and time where people are kind of going to their corners and a bit of extreme and it's hard to find a lot of connection and when i consume that on the daily any of us that consume media which most of us do it can feel overwhelming if there is one thing that can take me to a space of dark mm. it's consumption fatigue it's when i just take on the uh everything i'm seeing out in the world but light gives me hope. And so when I see the lights come back on for somebody and I see it here every week, I'm really fortunate to get to engage with that. When I have a lights coming back on experience, then I immediately feel hopeful and think there's really nothing that we can't accomplish as a species. There's really nothing we can't go after mm -hmm. as long as we stay optimistic and engage with hope. And when I see 
or experience light, it really draws me closer to hope. Mm, absolutely. So we've got two more here, Miles. The next is shame. Well, I'm, just, I'm telling you the first thing that pops into my subconscious, and this one may be, I may have a hard time making sense out of this one, but it was ceiling. And I'll tell you why. I did, when I got into my own emotional healing journey and recovery, hmm. I it was a process. And for years, I did a lot of deep interpersonal work, hmm. was able to heal a lot of things that didn't belong to me, was able to clear the path. Mm. So that I had an opportunity to move forward. But then when I went to put some of those tools into day-to-day life, Mm -hmm. I still kept bumping into myself and felt stuck. So here I was years into recovery, years into therapy, and Mm. still feeling stuck in in certain areas, relationally, um, you know, in my leadership in some ways. And there was a second layer. And for me, that was shame. The whole first 10 years of me doing interpersonal work, I don't think I touched my shame story. And maybe I wasn't supposed to, but thankfully I'm, I'm friends with a lot of people that work closely in that space around shame and, and mm. it hit me right at the right time. But I recognized that every time I would get up with the tools of my recovery, I felt like I would hit my head on my shame ceiling and my mm. shame ceiling was really low. It was like this cloud that kept me from really connecting with other people and where I was going. And ultimately when I did, when I, when I started engaging with and doing my shame work, it was mm-hmm. like I raised my shame ceiling to a place where I could fully stand up and be mm-hmm. me. And it's still there. You know, it, it doesn't go anywhere for me. I've, I've learned not to try to stamp it out because I don't, it's not realistic. I've just learned to engage with it differently. It's, it's got a little bit of a seat. Of, it's got a seat at the table. It's in the house but it doesn't have a loud as a voice and I've got the freedom to move around and be mobile without feeling constrained by it. So. Yeah. I really recognize that. Yeah. It's like you can I imagine, I'm imagining you in, in this room of shame, but you can stand up and you can breathe and you can going back to what you said earlier, you reflect, you respond rather than having to react. Maybe it taps into that. It sounds like, um, finally compassion. Mm. I, the, the first, the word that pops in my head as a, I think compassion, I just think people I have since I was, I think I was born to do this kind of work because I've always just had a heart for the underdog mm. for people who didn't quite feel like they had a seat at the table or that they fit in even way before. And and, and ironically I, I did, I was fortunate mm. to, excel in athletics and some other areas socially to where i had a pretty you know quote unquote popular upbringing in my developmental years i was in leadership roles and popular throughout uh, early education and into high school and college mm. but i always was attuned to the people that weren't and i didn't just hang with the other people that were pop it's not a pat on my back it's just the way i'm wired i didn't hang with just the people that were popular i always made space for and tried to pull along the people who didn't quite fit in yeah. to the, the social and cultural norms. And ironically, now that I've come full circle, the more I've gotten in tune with I am, I think they were more in tune earlier than I was. Because I think when we really get comfortable with who we are, we all feel a little awkward and mm. socially inept. And, mm. and when we stop pretending like we've got it all together and we know how to interact, I think we all just feel a little 
odd. And I think that's okay. And so when I look back at the people that were like the oddballs and developers, I think they had it dialed in back then. We just didn't know. And now I'm more at peace with the odd and awkward parts of myself. and don't have a need to be seen um, by, by, by those people. And I believe that every human we engage with and that engages with us, if we can look through the lens of compassion, mm-hmm. and I think we got a better world. Yeah. So I think sure. people when I think compassion. Oh, love that. Just lastly, before I let you go, you, you alluded to your, your new book that's coming out. Tell me about it. When can we expect it? Um, and what are the rest, what does the rest of 2023 hold for you and on site? Well, we, thank you. We've got some great, some exciting plans. And one of those is, is, is me trying to get this book out the door. I've been working on it for quite a while, but I've really been gaining mm. steam and, mm. It's it's also I mentioned the podcast is going to be called Human School and HumanSchool.com is ultimately going to be a, an emotional health masterclass library. But then mm-hmm. I'm writing the book Human School, so that's what mm. it's going to that's what it's going to be. It's kind of a field guide uh, for a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. Yeah, I, I'm really wanting to to scrub out a lot of the clinical and pathology uh, uh, pathology based approach that we often present our information because. Mm. It can, it, there's insider speak and there's yeah. only certain people that are going to engage with it. And I, do, I just don't so want to write another therapy self-help book that is so predictable that everybody's so I'm really, but it's hard. That's what's made it such a long and taxing process yeah. is trying to take complex clinical concepts and scrub them down into everyday language and just make it a narrative story driven, um, inspirational book that ideally gives people practical tools to do life and relationship better. And mm-hmm. so that's what I'm deep, deep in the, the weeds on. And it's hard mm-hmm. to say the timeline. I, I hope by probably sp- it'll either be fall or spring next year when it's out the door, but, yeah. but I'm, I'm in the middle of working on it now. And then on site, um, we've got a lot of neat things going, you know, we, we've been growing into our second campus out in San Diego. Uh, we, I love, you know, you know, thanks to our friends at Johan Portobello, all those guys. And then we have mm-hmm. so many others in, mm. in, in, in your neck of the woods that I've just forgotten <laughs> to be friends with. Yeah. I, I love the work we get to do internationally. And we have so many people that have over the years, especially from the UK that travel over to do engage in our programming and our workshops. Mm. And it's been kind of this, we, we've, you know, a lot of other American brands have had market development people and marketing people. We've never had that. It's just been this organic, the, the mm. people are connecting with the people and it's really been beautiful, but I want to do some more. I, I just love it there. And I want to do, we want to do some more international stuff. So we're exploring what that could look like to come over and, and uh, do some more trainings and mm-hmm. maybe some workshops. So that's on deck. And, and then we're, we're continuing to build out our digital portfolio too. So just a lot of exciting stuff for 23. Oh, amazing. Well, I can't, can't wait to read the book. It sounds fantastic. And yeah, really, really grateful for your coming on the show today, giving up your time and sharing so honest, honestly and um, vulnerably and your authenticity. Thank you, Miles. Thank you, Matthew. You made it easy. It was really fun. Thanks for having me. Hope to see you again soon. Likewise. Thanks so much to Miles for coming on the show. Conversations like that are precisely why I'm doing this podcast. There was so much I valued in what Miles shared. The importance of surrendering control of the reins, those guru types we deem to be infallible, and the importance of recognizing they too, like us, are human beings. Historically, I would often put others on a pedestal, thinking I couldn't do the things they do, certainly nowhere near as well as them. 
I've experienced the power of those Idemas gurus sharing their humanness with me, which helps me respond to myself with compassion rather than shame. I loved Miles' notion of an emotional tune-up. Also, the difference between IQ and EQ and how important it is to accept and have compassion for ourselves as imperfectly perfect humans. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. To learn more about OnSite, check out onsiteworkshops.com. And to keep up to date with Miles' new book, podcast, and other work, check out milesadcox.com. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioral Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett, edited by Tom Worrell. You've been listening to The Journey Home Podcast.